0: So this morning as we continue our look through the book of Psalms, I want to start just as I mentioned to the kids by retelling you a story, Uh, a story that most likely uh, even these youngest kids here know. It's a story of of great daring uh, and of great faith uh, and of great praise to God for the victory that he delivered through his chosen king. And I've already given it away, the message to the kids. Of course, it's the story of David and Goliath. It's a story that begins when David was around 15 years old. Uh, He'd been living a fairly ordinary life with his family in Bethlehem and uh, helping take care of his father's flock of sheep uh, until one day his father decided to send him on kind of an unusual errand. Uh, If you recall, his uh, three older brothers were soldiers in King Saul's army. Uh, They were fighting the Philistines, and David's father Jesse... Yeah, it looks like your name, that's right. David's father Jesse... Uh, sent David with some food and supplies to take to his brothers who were on the front lines. Now when David arrived, he found the Israelite army on one hill and he found the Philistine army on another hill with a valley in between them. David located his brothers and while he was uh, talking with them, he witnessed an incredible sight, a sight that had frightened the bravest warriors of the Israeli army for the last month and a half. Uh, it was the sight of a nine-foot, nine-inch giant named Goliath, a giant who uh, made it his fiendish amusement to come out twice a day, every day, and shout out uh, this challenge to the Israelite army that he would fight any of their men one-on-one, and the winner would be the winner for the entire army of either side. So you got to picture two champions battling it out, winner take all, uh, but each time the Israelites would hear this challenge, they'd cower in fear, leaving Goliath's taunts to go unchallenged, shaming the pride of Israel's armies, and blaspheming the God of heaven and earth. But that is, of course, until David heard it. And that is before David went out to confront him. Now, when Goliath saw David walking across that valley, he thought it was a joke. Uh, A joke that out of all of these soldiers that the best the Israelite army had to offer was a little boy with no armor, really no weapons to speak of. But then how through a miraculous chain of events David defeated Goliath, striking him between the eyes with a stone from his leather sling and the giant fell face down to the ground from where David took Goliath's sword and cut off his head while the Philistine army ran in fear and the Israelites chased them down and defeated them. And from, from that event, from that experience, uh, King David, looking back on the episode later in his life, wrote a song about it. And he wrote uh, about how he felt about all that had happened and in praise to God for that great deliverance that he brought on that battlefield. And so that's what we're going to be looking at today in Psalm 9. So if you have your Bibles with you, uh, I encourage you to follow along in the Scriptures. If you don't have it with you, it'll be on the screen. Uh, but this is Psalm 9, the superscription that reads, to the choir master, according to the Muth Laban, a psalm of David. And the psalmist writes I will thank, give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will recount all of your wonderful deeds. I will be glad and exalt in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. When my enemies turn back, they stumble and perish before your presence. For you have maintained my just cause. You've sat on the throne giving righteous judgment. You've rebuked the nations. You've made the wicked perish. You blotted out their name forever and ever. The enemy came to an end in everlasting ruins. Their cities you rooted out. The very memory of them has perished. But the Lord sits enthroned throne forever. He has established His throne for justice. And He judges the world with righteousness. He judges the peoples with uprightness. The Lord is a strong tower for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. And those who know your name put their trust in you, for you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. Sing praises to the Lord who sits enthroned in Zion. Tell among the peoples his deeds, for he who avenges blood is mindful of them. He does not forget the cry of the afflicted. Be gracious to me, Lord, see my affliction from those who hate me. O you who lift me up from the gates of death, that I may recount all your praises, that in the gates of the daughter of Zion I may rejoice in your salvation. The nations have sunk in the pit that they have made, in the net that they hid. Their own foot has been caught. The Lord has made himself known. He has executed judgment. The wicked are snared in the work of their own hands. And the notation says, Higayon Selah. Higayon is just a a musical notation here that probably means the next section is sung uh, in a more solemn tone. And of course, Selah means stop and think about what the author has already written. And he continues in verse 17, The wicked shall return to Sheol, to to the pit, to hell. All nations that forget God. For the needy shall not always be forgotten and the hope of the poor shall not perish forever arise. O Lord, let not man prevail. Let the nations be judged before you. Put them in fear, O Lord. Let the nations know that they are but men. So now, just by way of a, a little technical introduction here, Psalm 9 is the first of the acrostic psalms uh, in the book of Psalms. And there's eight others that we'll come to in the course of our studies. And you guys all know what acrostic is, right? It's a, it's a poem or, or other form of writing in which the first letter or the first syllable of the line spells out a word, okay? Uh, or it can also be a piece of writing that follows an alphabetical order, and that's what this psalm does. So psalm 9 actually uses the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet to start out each section of two verses, and the writer uses each letter of the alphabet uh, in their order straight through. And like everything else in Scripture, there's a reason for that. James Montgomery Boyce, the great expositor, said, "Uh, we can think of several reasons why the acrostic style was used. He said, it may have been an artistic device to add a certain beauty to the psalm in the way that rhyme does to our poetry. Uh, He said, or it may indicate that the subject was being covered completely from, like we would say, from A to Z, right? Or he said, the acrostic may have been a mnemonic device designed to assist the young in learning the psalms. And he closes by saying, that's probably why Many Old Testament passages are poetry rather than prose because poetry is easier to memorize. And not only is the structure of the psalm interesting, but the superscription, uh, I think, is interesting and presents a little mystery. Just like we've seen in earlier psalms, this one is written to the choir master uh, or to the chief musician in some translations. So it could have a double meaning of referring to the music leader of the temple, but could also refer to an address to the creator of music, which is God himself. Uh, and then we uh, read it was written according to the, the Muth Laban, which is, is the name of the tune that it was written after. Like, you know, some of how of our favorite hymns, uh, our lyrics are written to popular song tunes of a different era. Okay, and so this Muth Laban being translated means a song concerning the death of the sun. Or some, some of your translations may read concerning the death of the champion. But either way, most Jewish and Christian commentators agree that the psalm uh, was indeed inspired by David's gratitude over the feet of Goliath of Gath, son of the Philistines and champion of its armies. Uh, And they also agree that while Psalm 9 touches on several themes, that it's a psalm primarily about praising God. And so uh, what I want us to explore in the actual message today is the topic of praising God uh, and what praising God looks like what it means to praise uh, and and how we should do it together because sometimes uh, you and I forget the value of praising God, don't we? Uh, It's like the the man I read about and his little 10-year-old son who are on an extended weekend uh, fishing trip several miles away from home and during the course of the trip when the Lord's Day came around, uh, the little boy insisted that they attend the local Sunday service at a small country church that was near the the lake where they were fishing. But when the time came around for the offering plate to be passed, the dad realized he had forgotten to bring any cash for the collection. So he he digs deep down into his pocket and he he fished out a quarter and gave it to his son to drop in the offering plate as it was passed. And so they sat through the rest of worship and uh, they walked out to their car after the service. But to the boy's surprise, the the dad just kept complaining about everything that had happened. He complained about... The length of the service Uh, he complained that the sermon was boring. He complained that the praise and worship uh, Songs were off key until finally the son Interrupted and said "Uh, I know dad, but what did you expect for a quarter? (laughs) Because praise doesn't come cheap does it (laughs) Praise doesn't come cheap. That's why the Bible calls us to a sacrifice of praise And you know, when we look at the Old Testament, there are many different words translated praise, but the word used here primarily in Psalm 9 to praise means to have an emphasis on the things that you say, on verbal praise. Because God created speech. He gave us a voice, and He expects us to employ it in praising Him. In fact, Charles Spurgeon, the famous 19th century English pastor, uh, said, praise is the rent which God requires for the use of His mercies. I like that line. Praise is the rent which God requires for the use of His mercies. And he said, Believers who continually praise the Lord pay their rent. Those who don't are robbing Him. That's a good thought. Because you see, praise is not optional for the people of God uh, and for the Christian. It's got to be part of our lives. And David really hit the nail on the head in this psalm. uh, And clearly so, I think, in one particular verse if you have your Bibles open, if you look at Psalm 9, verse 14, when he says that, "...I may recount all your praises, that in the gates of the daughter of Zion I may rejoice in your salvation." And you just like the the multi-layered meaning behind the acrostic of the psalm and, and the superscription that I probably bored you with at the beginning. I did that for a reason. Uh, because there's also, a I believe, a beautiful uh, double meaning in this verse... Because, in a very real sense, when you read that, you can read David as saying, I will rejoice in your Jesus. I will rejoice in your Jesus. Now, don't forget, David wasn't just a shepherd, he wasn't just a warrior, he wasn't just a king. David was a prophet. Acts chapter 2, verse 30 tells us that. He was a prophet uh, who, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, foresaw our ultimate rescue in the person and the work of Jesus Christ and that truth finds its way into the writing today in Psalm 9 and I'll give you just a a quick explanation of what I mean when you see the word salvation here in Psalm 9 and uh, in other places in the Old Testament you're actually seeing the Hebrew word Yeshua Yeshua which literally means God saves and it's also the same word the same name given to one of David's greatest descendants who would that be? Our Lord Jesus, right? Our Lord Jesus. Remember in Matthew one twenty-one when the angel Gabriel who uh, spoke to Mary and then to Joseph in a dream. Now, if you think about it, when he came to them, he didn't come to them speaking in English uh, or in Latin or in Greek. He would have spoken to them in Hebrew, in their native tongue, in the same language this Psalm nine was written in. Uh, and he said to Joseph, Joseph, son of David, don't fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you will call his name, in Hebrew, Yeshua, Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Uh, And Mary and Joseph weren't slow to grasp the meaning and the significance of the name of this divine son about to be born to them. Uh, In fact, while Mary was still pregnant, she sang in Luke chapter 1, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. And Mary and Joseph weren't the only two people who God revealed this to. If you remember when the Holy Family went to the temple for Jesus' dedication, that the elderly Simeon came there too, led by the Holy Ghost, and took the baby Jesus in his arms, and he said, Lord, now let us thy servant depart in peace according to thy word, for mine eyes have seen thy, salvation. thy Yeshua, thy Jesus, right? And not only did his eyes see God's salvation, God's begotten Son, but he touched him and he, he held him and Simeon's human heart leaped with joy as he felt the loving heart of God beating in the chest of the Holy Infant Jesus, the descendant of David. And Simeon, he, he couldn't just help but rejoice right out loud, right out loud for everyone around him in the temple to hear. Just like David talks about today in Psalm 9, Uh, David, who said, I'm going to praise you right in the gates of the daughter of Zion. And, you know, if you aren't sure what David meant by that, the daughter of Zion is mentioned several times in the Old Testament, uh, usually in prophecy and and once in poetry. But the name Zion just meant Jerusalem. And it was later synonymous for Israel as the people of God. So uh, the daughter of Zion here then doesn't refer to a specific person, but it's a metaphor for Israel uh, and the loving, caring, patient Parental relationship that God has with his chosen people and and just to cement that I want to give you a couple notable examples that you can jot down So you really see it in the book of uh, Zechariah, as God's people were looking for deliverance a prophecy is given there a promise actually that that Israel's enemies would be destroyed just like David talks about in Psalm 9 today but one that also speaks about a more permanent solution to our greater need for deliverance of sin. So, if you look at Zechariah chapter nine, verse nine, it says, "Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion! Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem! Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having what? Salvation. Now, there's that word again. Righteous and having salvation. Is he humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey? And now, despite the consistent rebellion of that daughter of Zion, of the people of Israel against her father, God promises to restore her and to send her a deliverer, a king who embodies that righteousness and that salvation. Just like Isaiah tells us in Isaiah 62, 11, which says, Behold, the Lord has proclaimed to the ends of the earth, say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your salvation, your Yeshua, your Jesus comes. And I want you to watch this next part if you're following in your Bibles and notice how Isaiah uses this word Yeshua more as a as a noun than a verb, more as a name, uh, more so than as an act of deliverance. He says, Behold, your salvation, your Yeshua comes. Behold, your salvation comes. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. So Isaiah uh, is saying to Israel and to us, you know what, you better start praising God now because your salvation, your Jesus is coming. He's coming. And at His coming, He's bringing His reward and His recompense. He's bringing His heavenly profit to His people and He's bringing eternal payback to His enemies. That's why David writes today, the wicked shall return to Sheol, to to hell, to the pit. All the nations that forget God. All the nations that uh, live their lives in forgetfulness of God and in neglect of His praises. In fact, one commentator on this said how solemn... Uh, is Psalm 917, especially in its warning to forgetters of God, in its warning to the merely moral man who is not devout in praising God, in its warning to uh, the simply honest person who is not also prayerful, in its warning to the benevolent person who is not believing, to the amiable who are not converted. And he says these must all have their own portion of, with the openly wicked in hell, which is prepared for the devil and his angels. He said there are whole nations of such. The forgetters of God are far more numerous than the profane. And according to David's very forceful expression of Hebrew Sheol in this verse, the nethermost hell will be the place of all those who forget to praise God. And he closes by saying to us, forgetfulness may seem a small sin, but it brings eternal wrath upon the people of God who live and who die in it. Now that's something to think about. In our forgetfulness of all that God has done for humanity, forgetfulness of all the benefits of creation that he's bestowed upon us, and all the common graces that he shares with the whole world. Now, I think it's pretty clear that the forgetter of God that David has in mind is the unbeliever, the unregenerate who never think of thanking or Of praising god but could he be much happier with us when we who know and believe in all of god's limitless blessings and his great work of salvation in christ when we forget to praise him could god be much happier with us i mean at least the unbeliever has the excuse that they don't believe in god and so naturally they wouldn't think to praise him but what excuse do we have we who have known and tasted god's goodness We who, like David, have seen God defeat giants. Lots of them. Whether they're literal or metaphorical, we've seen God defeat the giant of financial difficulties. We've seen God defeat the giant of illness. We've seen God defeat the giant of grief. (coughs) Excuse me. And one day, one day very soon, brothers and sisters, we will see God finally and totally defeat the giant of sin that suffered its death blow at Calvary and that day when David says in verse 6 that the enemy came to an end in everlasting ruin because just as David and the people of Israel saw the defeat of their enemy in the Old Testament the Bible says that we will see ours defeated in the New Testament So the book of Revelation chapter 21 we read uh, and the apostle John is writing he said when then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away And the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. And he'll dwell with him, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He'll wipe away every tear from their eyes and death Shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. <coughs> Excuse me. And I really I love that wording, um, passed away. Because you know generally when we say it we think of someone that we love that's died, right? We say they passed away. But here in this reading we're told that one day that death itself will pass away, along with with grieving and crying and hurt, just as David prophesied in today's text when he wrote, for the needy shall not always be forgotten, and the hope of the poor shall not perish forever. I don't know about you, but sometimes we all feel pretty poor and needy, don't we? Right? Whether it's in uh, finances or in health or uh, sometimes even in just the, uh, the mire of all the bureaucracy and the red tape that this world has to offer. Have you ever had to deal with that? It's like a, uh, a story that Pastor John told me, so he's guilty for this one. He told me the story of a, uh, a small country uh, church a pastor there who, when he went into work, into his office at the church on a Monday morning, that he discovered a dead mule lying in the churchyard. So he telephoned the police, but since there didn't appear to be any foul play, the police just referred the pastor on to the health department. He called the health department They explained since there was no eminent health threat that he would have to call the sanitation department. So the pastor calls the sanitation department only to have the manager there say, I can't pick up that dead mule without authorization from the mayor. (laughs) Well, the pastor was not at all too eager to call the mayor who was a a self-proclaimed atheist and who was known to have a very bad temper and was always extremely unpleasant and hard to deal with. But uh, eventually the pastor did call the mayor anyway uh, and he didn't disappoint he was in rare form uh, and he immediately began to rant and to rave and verbally abuse the pastor for close on to about 20 minutes until he finally said to the pastor and another thing why did you bother to call me anyway isn't it your job to bury the dead and pastor took a deep breath and paused for a little prayer asking the lord to guide his response and then he very confidently said in to the receiver, yes, Mr. Mayor, it is my job to bury the dead, but I always like to notify the next of kin first. <laughs> 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 now, today you may feel like you've been on the receiving into the same kind of abuse as that pastor was from the world and from the flesh and from the devil but i want you to know that god is with you you may be feeling today like you've been forgotten and pushed around and running short on hope you may even feel like you're one of those israeli soldiers standing in front of goliath and like the things that are stacked up against you are uh, bigger and and stronger and more aggressive than you think you can handle but Remember what David said he wrote in today's psalm the Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed A stronghold in times of trouble and those who know your name put their trust in you For you, O Lord have not forsaken those who seek you See the Lord is near to those who seek him He's near to those who keep his deeds in remembrance and who keep his praises on their lips And genuine love for him in our hearts and yours and mine so that I can come in confidence to that throne of grace and I can say in the words of the psalmist today, I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I'll recount all of your wonderful deeds. I'll be glad and exalt in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. And so we can cry out then with David, Be gracious to me, O Lord. See my affliction from those who hate me. O you who lift me up from the gates of death, Now, who is that? Who who is that that lifts us up from the gates of death? It's our salvation. It's our Jesus. That's why Hebrews 12 tells us, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. You know, we started out, this morning in that little kind of lengthy introduction seeing that superscription of Psalm 9 today tells us uh, it was set to a tune called the death of the son or the death of a champion uh, and talking about how it probably alluded to Goliath's defeat but I wonder if it doesn't have a little bit of a double meaning too uh, a meaning pointing us not to the death of uh, Philistine but to the prince of peace maybe pointing us not to the defeat of a great giant but to the triumph of a great savior pointing us not to Goliath of Gath, but to the man of Golgotha, pointing us to Jesus Christ, our rightful Lord and our righteous Savior, whose name is forever praised, so that we can rejoice because one day, and one day very soon, we are going to experience the salvation that only Christ can bring. Amen? Would you please stand for the Apostles' Creed and for our closing hymn? Brothers and sisters, let's confess together what we believe. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead, He ascended into heaven and sitteth at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen.